I really do thank you this morning for your wonderful presence. means more than anything else, God. Thank you for your sweet spirit that's in this place. I pray that you would direct every word that is going to be said this morning, that it would minister to your church, that it would speak into every single life. Your word is indeed that lamp and that light. But God, it is our source of hope. It's our source of life. God bless this people today. I'll be careful to give you praise, honor, and glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you richly. Thank you for praying with me. You may be seated. I felt days ago that I would pursue the topic that I'm going to talk to you about today. And uh, so that has remained pretty much the direction we've gone in all of our study. But then when your first song was sang this morning, it was definitely a confirmation of what I've been feeling. The title of this message today is Rescued by Mercy. Rescued by Mercy. It has been my experience through my 50 years of ministry that God does things at times and we don't really even notice it. It's like we were waiting for the lightning bolt to strike or the earth to shake. And while we were waiting for the earth to shake and the lightning to flash, God was doing things and we get down the road a little bit and we look back and we say, ah, that's, what, that, that's what God did. I remember as a little boy, I was about eight years old. And I was in a Baptist Sunday school class and uh, the teacher told the story of Samuel and how that God spoke to that young boy. I thought, well, if he did it for me, uh, for him, he can do it for me. So I got home from Sunday school, and I got my little dog. I lived in West Virginia at that time. And my dog's name was Shorty. He was a three-legged dog. He was a character. But he followed me everywhere I went. So I just said, Shorty, let's go. And uh, we went up a little mountain behind our house. I just sat down in the tall grass and told Shorty to be still. I said, Shorty, now hush. Don't move. I'm going to listen for God. I figured if he did it for Samuel, he's the same God today. Why not? So I sat there. It was an eternity. It was forever. It was probably maybe a minute. But in a little boy's life, that was just a long, long time. And God didn't speak. At first, I was kind of disappointed, and I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and have a good day. And so me and Shorty went and chased some rabbits and climbed a mountain and went back home. Years passed. I was not scarred for life, but years passed in my life. And when 
I came to the Lord. I didn't know the Lord at that time. I lived for a long time without, I mean, I'm just doing my own thing, telling God, I'll get back to you. And uh, it, not a good decision, not, not a good decision. But after I came to the Lord, received the Holy Ghost, was baptized in his beautiful name, and began this wonderful relationship, it was as if God kind of took me back in time. And it was as if he said, remember that day you were on the mountain and lying in that big tall grass and you were waiting for me to speak to you. You were waiting for some thundering voice, something that, I mean, would shake the ground you were on. You were waiting for something just spectacular. You didn't know I was already talking to you. That's why you were on that little mountain. That's why you were waiting. That's why you were listening. I realized, God, you're right. There's three voices that speak into my life. One is the devil. One is my flesh. And the other is God. Two voices are quickly eliminated from my little trek after Sunday school class. But the other one is exactly what I was waiting for. God spoke to me. A little boy in a Sunday school class, God spoke to me. There is no other reason why my heart would have hungered for that relationship. Years have passed. My ministry has continued on from then. And I've I've read the book of Revelation. I'm just talking now. I'll preach in a little bit. And in the book of Revelation, the, there were seven letters written to seven churches. And tagged onto those letters was this admonition. Let him that hath an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so in my desire to get closer to God and deeper relationship, I've prayed often, God, give me an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. Sort of like the same prayer I prayed when I was a little boy. Give me an ear to hear. And so I'm looking for this Holy Ghost, you know, chill to come over me and goosebumps and, and then God to speak. And so, okay, that's it. That's what I want. But it was just recently that I realized what was happening in the book of Revelation. God gave John letters to write to the church. And he said, give it to the messenger, the angel of that church, which would have been the local pastor, the minister. And when the minister would speak, it would be the Holy Ghost, the Spirit speaking to the church. It's not complicated. So when I got that revelation, I should have got it 40 years ago, I realized that this is not something that we're waiting for just some kind of spectacular. And God does sometimes move by the gifts of the Spirit, and God does sometimes that just... But, but most of the time, God will move on the minister by His Spirit to speak words into our lives that will help us to overcome the enemy. 
So this morning, I hope that God will use this voice to minister to you and to help you. Israel would go into battle against the Ammonites, the Moabites. These were the descendants of an, of an incestual relationship between Lot and his two daughters. And they were perpetual enemies of the people of God. They were the ones that tried to hinder them on their way to Canaan during the Exodus. Oh, no, you're not coming through here. We're going to make it as hard on you as we possibly can. There is a method of study that takes the events of the Old Testament and applies them to the Christian life in the New Testament, and it's called typology. For example, Jonah emerging from the fish's belly is a type of Jesus coming out of the grave. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So when we read the pages of the Old Testament, we're just, we're just not reading a history book. We are reading a message that's applicable to where we are in our New Testament walk with God. So in typology, these Ammonites and these Moabites are examples of those enemies that try to thwart the purpose of God in the lives of those who have left sinful living and are on their way to God's purpose for their life, which is ultimately heaven. So when Jehoshaphat heard the news of a strong enemy that was coming against them, he wisely turned to God for help. He didn't count how many soldiers we have, what do our weapons look like. He wisely said, I need help from God. Anytime there's opposition in our lives of any form, any fashion, any source, the wise thing for us to do is to go to God in prayer and fasting and seek the help and the mercy of God. So here's what God did in response to his prayer. 2 Chronicles 20, 14 through 17. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. He said, hearken ye all Judah. In other words, listen up. All ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and you king, listen to what I'm fixing to say. Thus saith the Lord unto you, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, and get this, for the battle is not yours, it's God's. That takes so much pressure off of the situation. It's not your battle. This is God's. Tomorrow you're going to go down against them, and behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. What you need to do is to set yourselves. Commit. You need to stand ye still. Take a stand. Don't run. Don't be afraid 
And when you do that, you're going to see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. And then again, he reminds him, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. I believe that I can take that event and these words and transpose them into our life today. God urged them, don't be discouraged. Then he instructed them, take a stand. Then he said that you're going to defeat the enemy. Now get this. They're going to defeat the enemy with a song. This is awesome. Look at Second Chronicles 20, 20. They arose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers. I noticed you like to sing. There ain't nothing wrong with that. And there's everything right with it. Listen to this. He appointed singers unto the Lord and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. And here's the song he told them to sing. Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. That's the song. Hallelujah. In verse 22, and when they began to sing and to praise the Lord, Set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. Amazing. Jehoshaphat just told them to have faith in God and believe the word that had gone forth by the prophets. Then he put the singers before the army. Verse 23. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood against, up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. Now in verse 23, there's a whole lot going on. For some reason, they got confused. And they began to fight their allies first. The Ammonites and the Moabites began to attack the citizens of Seir, the soldiers, and they killed them. And then it's not over because there was such confusion that they began to turn on each other. You know, when you start singing about the mercy of God, it throws hell into a state of total confusion. They were not rescued by soldiers. They were not rescued by their military might or their military strategy. They were rescued by the mercy of God. Today, I want to preach, I want to talk about God's abundant mercy. 
So the Bible said when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked into the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. Every single soldier of the enemy was destroyed. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies, precious jewels which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. Now get this. They were three days in gathering the spoil. The fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Baraka, for there which just means praise. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the same place was called the Valley of Praise or the Valley of Blessing unto this day. In short, the army of the enemy had become confused. They destroyed each other. There was not even one survivor. They sang an oldie but a goodie. The mercy of God and threw the enemy into total chaos. And I believe the same thing happens when we begin to sing about the mercy of God, when we begin to preach about the mercy of God, when we begin to have faith in the mercy of God. The powers of darkness that work against us have no power over the mercy of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The other night I was with a group of preachers. There were eight of us, eight or nine of us. And we began to talk about just things. And then we began to talk about the mercy of God. And I said, have you considered how merciful our God is? You cannot measure his mercy. You cannot discover the total value of his mercy. It's an amazing thing. And then all of us began to agree as we began to talk about the mercy of God. The army of Judah, Judah means praise, took three days to carry off all those riches that were in the Ammonite and the Moabitish army. I'm wondering what they were doing with so much treasure. I don't know whether they had been marauding through the country and stealing from everybody before they got to where they were. But whatever the situation, God gave all those treasures in abundance to those people of Judah. When God gets through, when the mercy of God gets through with the enemy that comes against us and he defeats all the powers of darkness. What's left is an abundance of peace. Hallelujah. There is no peace like the peace that God can give us. The security, the feeling of well-being. There is no measurement as to the joy that is in our lives after the mercy of God defeats the enemies that have come against us. Did not the writer say it's joy 
unspeakable and full of glory. You can't describe the abiding joy that is in the heart of a child of God who has experienced the victory that comes through the mercy of God. I wish, oh God, how I wish. I wish I had the vocabulary to help everybody in this world understand the mercy of God. I know we have fallen. I know we have tripped up. I know we have stumbled. But there's something wonderful about God's mercy that restores us. Mercy and grace work together to provide salvation for us. Sometimes they're so they're, they're almost used interchangeably. But when we begin to look at the difference between mercy and grace, it just magnifies both of them. It's mercy that spares us from the judgment we deserve. Mercy stops the hand of judgment. But it's grace that brings us into the banquet room. It's mercy that says keep that sentence of judgment out of their lives. But it's grace that comes around and says you're a child of God. Come into the banquet room. It's mercy that when the prodigal son came home, mercy did not give him what he deserved in punishment. But it was grace that said, I've got a robe I'm going to put on you. I've got a ring I'm going to put on you. We're going to kill that fatted calf. We're going to have a banquet. Grace brings us into that. Mercy closes the door to hell, but grace opens the door to heaven. All of us, every single one of us are beneficiaries of the mercy of God. We are rescued by mercy. It is Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 that said, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. If we got what we deserve, you know if you ever heard somebody say, well, I just wish I'd get what I deserve. I just want what's coming to me. I just, no, you don't. <laughs> Whoa, don't go there. Don't even open that door. Don't even let those words come out of your mouth. Because if you do get what you deserve, if I get what I deserve, I'm lost forever. I pay the price for my sins. Listen, because his compassions fail not. Verse 23, they are new every morning that's amazing church I used up yesterday's supply don't worry about it here's a new day and you got a brand new supply of mercy why because he's a compassionate God I wish the world knew how much God really does love them in Ephesians chapter 2 here's what Paul said he said now you you once were dead in trespasses and sins Verse 1 of chapter 2. He said, in, the, in, in your past, you walked according to the course of the world. Can anybody relate to that? Yes. You lived just like every other sinner. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle. That's the way we all live. In the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. 
but God who is rich in mercy. Amazing. Now, if I were to talk about a human being being rich, it might be one thing. But when you talk about God being rich, you're talking about you don't even have the ability to imagine how great, how rich God's mercy is for his great love wherewith he loved us. Psalms chapter 86 verse 5 said, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Through my years of ministry, probably one of the most frustrating things that I've had to deal with is people who have failed God and feel like that they can't get back in the race, that they're just not good enough, that they've messed up so bad. I remember some conversations right now that are fresh where people have just simply said, I've done too much. I crossed the line God could never love somebody like me you don't understand the mercy of God you don't understand the mercy of God I want to help you understand the mercy of God he is plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee every backslider Every sinner that's ever been touched by the mercy of God, you need to understand God's mercy is immeasurable. It's incomparable. It's more powerful than we even have the ability to imagine. The entire ministry of Jesus Christ can easily be characterized as one of mercy. He was on a mission of mercy. Remember what blind Bartimaeus said. Have mercy on me. Remember what the Syrophoenician woman who came in behalf of her daughter she appealed to his mercy. The ten lepers were unclean, but they benefited from his mercy. The publican that was praying because he was unworthy beating his chest. Finally, it's that, that unworthy publican that realizes his mercy opens the door. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm preaching to some people this morning who have been rescued by mercy. Hallelujah. Years ago, there was a phenomenal message that was preached. I don't know how many preached it. It was across our fellowship. Trophies of hell. Trophies of hell. I remember the man that first preached it. At least the first time that we heard it in our generation. But he, in his message, and it was a convicting message, and it was a moving message. And it impacted lives. He talked about people who one time sat on church pews who are now away from God and talked about how their lives are destroyed and so on. And, but this morning, you know what? 
I'm really not in the mood to preach about trophies of hell, but I sure would like to preach about trophies of mercy. We are all trophies of mercy. Every single one of us represent the mercy of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. 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 Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy, the first chapter. He said this in verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy. What's this all about, Paul? He said, I want you to understand that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should thereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul's saying, I am a trophy of mercy. I want you to look at my life. I want you to see what I was doing. I was destroying the early church. I was having people put to death. I was doing everything I could to destroy the work that Jesus Christ had started. However, on a road to Damascus with a letter in my possession to continue the destruction of the early church, a merciful God appeared unto me. There was nothing. Paul had not prayed a prayer of repentance. He was not asking for forgiveness. He was still in the mode of destroying the church. He was still an enemy of the cross. Paul still wanted to make sure that he wiped out these followers of Jesus Christ. There's got to be mercy when somebody who's constantly being attacked uh, comes into a person's life uh, and says, I want you to know something about me. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I'll turn your life around. I want you to know I'll deliver you uh, from this deception. Why would you have that kind of mercy? Rescued by mercy. The mercy of God rescued Saul of Tarsus to become Paul, the missionary, evangelist, pastor, writer of more, well, actually about half of the letters in your New Testament. It's an amazing thing to me. Paul said, I'll tell you why. Because he wanted to set an example from this day forward of what mercy can do. He was guilty of horrible atrocities to the believers. He participated in having them arrested and tortured, imprisoned and put to death. Our first introduction to him was at the stoning of Stephen when he gave his approval. Mercy came to rescue the persecutor so that he could become a preacher of the gospel. I just wish we could understand. We wouldn't turn away. We would come closer. Let me go back to the pages of the Old Testament. God's delivered Israel. He gives them a place where they can come together and worship him. And all those instructions that 
God gave Moses for all those pieces of furniture. It was exquisite. It was, I started trying to figure it out this morning. I just said, I quit. Because I was up towards hundreds of millions of dollars that were used on the inside of that tabernacle. It didn't look like much on the outside. Now, the temple, did; it looked great on the outside. But the tabernacle, it's a different story. But on the inside, it was beautiful. The first piece of furniture that instructions were given to build was the Ark of the Covenant. And as the instructions were given, God said, now there's a lid I want you to put on that Ark. We're going to call it, you know what it is, the mercy seat. The mercy of God allows us to meet with him. The mercy of God allows us to communicate with him. The mercy of God allows us to receive forgiveness. At that point, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it was placed behind a veil and was only approachable once a year by one man. But at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, something amazing happened. The veil of the temple that caused the holy place to be separated from the rest of it was rent. That veil was rent from top to bottom, revealing that it was an action from heaven above, not from earth beneath. It was not a priest. It was not anyone. It was God. That veil was tightly woven fabric that was literally four inches thick. And it said that even a pair of oxen tied to each end could not rip it apart. But mercy ripped it from the top to the bottom. And now mercy is available to us 24-7. We can come as often as we need to. We can receive as much as we need. Because of mercy, we've got a hope of a better future. Jesus is our mercy seat. Hallelujah. Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. When you come before his throne, it's not judgment. That doesn't happen until the end of the book of Revelation. But right now when you come into the presence of God, his throne is a throne of grace. And then when you come before the throne, you will obtain mercy. Hallelujah. You will obtain mercy and grace and grace to help in time of need. Hallelujah. Anybody thankful that you're serving of God of mercy and a God of grace? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, the 23rd Psalm is probably the most popular piece of literature that mankind has ever known. It's beautiful throughout. It's beginning, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Beautiful. But the ending, the ending, surely, goodness and mercy. shall follow me all the days of my life. 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amazing. You stumble and somehow you get back up. You fall and somehow you get back up. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. What is it? How do I get back up after I have stumbled and fallen? It's something that God does by his spirit. Goodness and mercy comes alongside and gives you the strength to get back up on your feet and gives you the strength to lift up your hands and gives you the strength to lift up your voice and it fills your heart with hope and faith. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Anybody glad for mercy? Anybody glad for his mercy? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to take the time. I, I, I just want you to get a better look at this. There is a law, it's a hermeneutic law, that allows you to be able to interpret scriptures or understand scriptures. And there's, there's one of these laws, it's called the law of first mention, the rule of first mention. And it's not that unusual. We actually have it in our English class or our history class or, well, when we're talking about vocabulary words. For instance, the first mention of grace, it doesn't happen until Genesis chapter 6. Now, grace was happening all along since the fall. God's grace was there. But we don't get to know the word grace until in Genesis 6, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what does grace look like? Grace gives you an escape from the judgment that's being poured out on a wicked world. Grace says, I'll give you instructions on building a boat. And if you'll get it, grace will shut the door. Grace will keep you safe. That's what grace looks like. The word worship. It had been going on for a long time before we ever get introduced to the Word. The first time the Word's going to show up is Genesis 22. Here's where Abraham says, y'all stay right here. The lad and I are going to yonder mountain to worship, and then we're coming back. It took that long for us to be introduced to the word worship. How many of you can remember in your early, early years of school, when you were introduced to a vocabulary word with a little picture beside it, maybe run, spot, run. Oh, that's what that looks like, you know. That's spot, that's run, that's whatever. We, we had been talking about it, but here's what it looks like. So when we get to Genesis 19, it's the first time in the Bible that we're introduced to the word mercy. And when the morning arose... The angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife, thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid, the angels, laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife, 
and upon the hand of his daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they almost drugged them out of the city. That's a powerful demonstration of what mercy is really all about. Lot lingered. I can't even imagine him lingering when all this other stuff's going on. But that's the way mercy operates. There was nothing Lot had done to deserve this reprieve. It was his choice to go there in the first place. You could have been walking with Abraham, the man of God. But instead, you stubborn fool, you, you went another direction. He deserved the judgment that was coming. You want to go to Sodom and Gomorrah? You burn with them. Judgment's coming. You deserve it. Now, before we jump on Lot too bad, David Hunt deserved judgment too because I made some really foolish decisions. Not just back before Jesus, but since Jesus. I'm here this morning not because I deserve to be. I'm here by the mercy of God. I can go into a prayer closet not because I deserve to. I don't even deserve to speak his name. But his mercy allows me to escape the judgment that I've deserved because of my stubbornness, because of my selfishness, because of self. Mercy intervened. How many times has mercy intervened in your life? I've got to hurry and bring this to a close. I could keep, keep you here all morning about this. As great and as powerful as mercy is, here's the scary part. Can you deny mercy? Sadly, yes. Just ask Lot's wife. She had to literally pull away from mercy and redirect her desires towards Sodom while the judgment of God was taking place. David is another mercy trophy. Giant killer. Psalm writer, worshiper, pursuer of God, king, man after God's own heart, but he fails. And his fall was as horrible as his accomplishments were great. Uncontrolled lust for a woman turned into adultery, that turned into murder, that turned into living a lie. But a merciful God spoke to a preacher by the name of Nathan, to go in and point his bony finger into David's face and say, you know, you're the guy. You're the scoundrel. Gave him the parable of the sheep and the, the man who stole his neighbor's uh, ewe lamb, all this. And so he says, David, you're the guy I'm talking about. It was at that point that David felt the conviction of God but the mercy of God. And in the Psalms, David writes, God have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. David's restoration came because of the mercy of God. 
How many people would have given David a chance? Not many. Not many. I mean, the guy was low. That's about as low as you can get. You're the king. Lazy bum, you should have been out there in the battlefield to begin with. Letting everybody else fight your battles, and here you are up in the palace. And then you get to looking at your neighbor's wife, and you begin to want her. You invite her up to the palace. While he's out there fighting your battles, while he's out there battling for your kingdom, you're here, you're a scoundrel. They don't come any lower than you. And then when she tells you she's expecting, you go lower. I didn't think you could do it. But he comes home from the battlefield because you asked for him. And then you tell him to go to the house, and he said, I ain't going. And then you get him drunk. And a drunk soldier has more integrity than you do. Because he said, I'm not, no, no. While my my brothers are out there on the, the battlefield, to go home and enjoy being with my family, it ain't happening. I'll, I'll sleep right here. David realized I ain't getting out of this. I ain't getting out of it. So he wrote a death letter, gave it to Uriah and said, there it is. It's a message for Joab. Take it to him. He didn't know that he was giving Joab his own death letter. Because David said, I'll tell you what you want, really want you to do. I want you to put him up in the front line then I want you to draw everybody back and leave him there by himself so he'll be killed. And that'll sweep everything under the rug. I'm going to be very honest with you. If I knew a man did something like that and he comes to me and says, I need a $5 bill. I'm, I'm starving. I just, I just need a hamburger. It'd take everything in me. It'd take God. Because on the surface, I'm saying ain't happening, buddy. You, you're as low as a human being can go. But instead, God sent a preacher. said, I love you enough to give you mercy. I could have killed you right at the beginning, but instead I gave you mercy. Anybody thankful for the mercy of God? I tell you, I'm here by the mercy of God. Because if I had to pay for all the sinful things I've done. I was not born in the church. I, I There's a lot in my life that I am very ashamed of and don't ever want to go back there. There ain't nothing worth bragging about, I'll tell you that. But the mercy of God spared me from the judgment I deserved. I wish the world knew this. Proverbs 16.6 6 says, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Psalms 32.10 said, But he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. <laughs> Sometimes you don't recognize mercy. Sometimes it comes with this disturbing feeling of loneliness and the thoughts of regret, and it doesn't feel good. It feels really bad. Psalms 5 and 7 says, But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house 
in reverence will I bow down toward your holy temple. Isaiah 55 and 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Musicians, would you come and help us wait upon the Lord? There's something 